Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, it's great to see you here at Redbreast Christian Church this morning. Uh, as Alex said earlier, we are closing in on the end of our series. Something that does not come from God, and therefore when we live in this spiritual battle. So what does not come from God uh, comes from Satan. And so uh, what we find that James lays out is that the wisdom that you and I naturally possess apart from God is this earthly wisdom. Uh, we live by the ways of the world that is influenced, uh, in a lot of ways, by the enemy. And so uh, James is not holding anything back. And he says, listen, earthly wisdom is marked by a couple things. He says it is marked by bitter envy. It is marked by jealousy. It is marked by selfish ambition. It is marked by lying. And what you start to see from this is that this looks an awful lot like the world we live in today. This earthly wisdom you can see from James's writing is very prevalent in our society today. In fact, I would submit to you that this is most of the wisdom of the world today. Most of our culture today is built around this idea of, of viewing something that you want and giving everything you have to get it. Everything is built around you. We laid out last week that this earthly wisdom is really set up to make you God. Earthly wisdom is really set up so that you're the object of worship. Whereas heavenly wisdom, James writes, is one that sees God exactly who he is, recognizes him as the sovereign one overall, and we live our lives in obedience to what he says. This is the divergence between earthly and heavenly wisdom. But James tells us that wherever earthly wisdom is present, wherever you find earthly wisdom on display, what inevitably follows is that you're going to see things like disorder, evil practices, chaos. And again, you look at our world today and you see there's a whole lot of earthly wisdom that's being put into practice. And so I want to just kind of dial you in to this this morning. That we live in a culture, and this is not a new phenomenon, but we live in a culture that is built around self. That is built around elevating you and I as the objects of worship in our heart. And everything that we do, everything that we desire, everything that we long for, is told to us that it needs to be built around how can it elevate me? How can it meet my wants and desires? Forget everyone else. How does it affect me? At the root of this earthly wisdom is a worship of us. And so our ideas, our wants, our desires, they take precedence over the wisdom that is built around a deep recognition of the holiness and the worthiness of God. And what we're going to find as we jump into chapter 4 is that if we're not careful, this reliance on earthly wisdom that is apart from God, it blinds us to the spiritual battle that you and I are in every single day. It blinds us to this fact. Because as James is going to write, when we are reliant on earthly wisdom, what inevitably follows is fighting and quarreling among ourselves. We make each other the enemy. And so this is why James writes what he does beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
And again, James has reminded us last week, at the end of chapter 3, you're not the source of heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom does not naturally flow out of you apart from Christ. And so you, apart from Christ, are very much dependent on earthly wisdom. And the truth of that is this, the wisest among us utilizing earthly wisdom cannot compare to the least wise of us possessing heavenly wisdom. That is the hard truth of this matter, that if we're relying on earthly wisdom, what is inevitably going to follow is this chaos, this fighting, this disorder. And so James is alluding to the fact that these people in the church that he's writing to are not relying so much on this wisdom that comes from God or walking in obedience to him. No, they're relying on their own hearts, their own desires, their own nature. And what it's causing is chaos. It's this elevation, again, of themselves. James is going to allude to this fact, but they're, they're worshiping themselves. Everything that they do is built around, how can I make much of my name? This is not a new phenomenon for you and I. Uh, this is the culture that we live in. This is the message that we hear every single day. Worship yourself. Take care of yourself. Look out for number one. Elevate yourself is what they're essentially saying. And all of this sounds well and good. Because after all, why wouldn't I want to worship myself? Why wouldn't I want to elevate myself? Why wouldn't I want all of my wants and desires to elevate me? This is not an issue until you come into play. Because if I'm worshiping myself and my world is, is built around my thoughts, my desires, my wants, it's all about me, then what follows is it cannot be about you. Because if it's about you, then it's not about me. And you start to see the problem of this earthly wisdom. If I'm elevating myself, you're elevating yourself, at one point or another, these two ideologies are going to come into play and they're going to butt heads. Because I can't be the object of the universe's worship and you can't be the object of the universe's worship. Both of those things cannot happen at the same time. And this is what James is trying to get them back to understand. All you're thinking about is yourself, and this person is thinking about their self, and this person is thinking about their self. And those are coming into clash with one another. And it leads to this jockeying for position, for stuff, for material possessions that James says, this is inevitably going to destroy you. It is going to tear you apart. And he gets to the why in verse 2. He says, you desire but do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. There's a couple things that we need to discuss that James has laid out here in verse two. The first thing that James is gonna remind us of is, is this is the outcome of self-worship. Every single time, this is the outcome. Always wanting more, never satisfied. This is what James is trying to get them to understand. <clears throat> He's trying to remind them, listen, all of your life is, is built around you. And that's great until you see something that somebody else has that you don't have. And the state of your heart because of that is, 
as you desire it. You're jealous of it. You have this envy rising up in you. What this self-worship inevitably does is it removes the contentment within us. It removes what God has blessed us with. It removes our view off of that, and it focuses us on what he has not given us. And this is what James is trying to get them to understand. Self-worship is never content. It is always wanting more. It's always wanting more. It's ignoring where true satisfaction and longing actually comes from. And James says, listen, because of that, because you're all so absorbed in the worship of yourself, you need to understand it's stirring up this intense anger. Much of the book of James is is patterned after Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus gives uh, this long laundry list of different things and one of the things that, that Jesus does is he takes us to the heart of the matter. And so he starts to say things like, you've, you've heard it said not to murder, but I tell you that, that any of you who have stirred up anger against your brother are guilty. Or you've heard it said not to commit adultery, but anybody who has looked at a man or woman with lust in their heart has already committed adultery. He's bringing us back to the heart of the matter. It's as if James is taking this and saying, listen, you don't have these things. You, you envy what your brother or sister has. It stirs up this resentment in you, and it's as good as murdering them in your heart. Do not take the sin lightly. And it's stirring up division within the church. And so if James could, could focus this group of believers with, with one sentence, it's, church, you're acting just like the world. You're acting just like this entity that you've said you're set apart from. But the things that you seek, the way that you elevate yourself, the way that you seek to to only get things for yourself and not worship God, you're acting just like them. And this shouldn't be. Then James comes to the second half. The second half of verse 2, he says, but you don't have because you do not ask God. Now we gotta be careful with this one. I wanna make sure that you understand this in its correct context because believe it or not, there is an entire Christian, I use that in quotation marks, theology built around this idea of just ask God for what you want. Just follow God and whatever you want, whatever you desire, he's gonna give it to you. No, what James is trying to get them focused on is, listen, you're, you're living a life because you're worshiping yourself. You're living a life that is not content with anything. It's why it's stirring up this bitter envy, this jealousy within you. It's why it's causing division and fights among the church. He's saying, listen, if you want contentment, there is a place it's found. It's found in God, but the reason you don't have contentment is because you're not asking God to fill you. You're not asking God to be the source of your contentment. You're content to be like the world and chase these material things that will not fill you. But James says, listen, contentment is there. It's there for the taking, but it's found in God and church. You're not asking him for it. You're not asking him to fill you with himself. 
which, by the way, is what your soul and your heart is actually longing for. You're not longing for more things. Your soul's deepest desire is not a a bigger position, a a bigger house, more money in your bank account. None of that's going to fill you. It's not what your soul was designed to be filled with. James is saying it is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, it is contentment is found in them, but you do not have the contentment that they offer because you do not ask. And the argument that James is building is that you're building this life on a house of sand. If you think that you're going to find contentment, satisfaction, purpose, identity, in the things that you have or the things that you don't have, you're mistaken. All of that comes rightly when you view God for who he really is, that he is sovereign over all, that he is the one that your soul was created to worship. It is then and only then that you ask him to fill you, to, to help you to be content, that you'll actually find fulfillment and contentment. This is the problem with self-worship. The danger of self-worship is that it's this vicious cycle of unkeepable promises followed by unmet expectations. The things apart from God that your heart desires, that that James would say you're, you're envious of, you're jealous of, they're going to promise you that they're going to fill you when the reality is, is time after time again, when you get those things, all of us recognize they don't measure up to the promises that they've made because they cannot. They cannot fill you. So this verse is bringing us to a place of true, for, true promise, of fulfilled expectations James is saying in verse two, you're not content because you're not not asking God to be your contentment. You're not seeing him for who he truly is because if you did, you would recognize he's enough. If you viewed him for who he really is, you would recognize that he is who your soul longs for. James is gonna come back to this point in verse three. But let me, let me illustrate where he's going with this. Uh, one of my favorite shows a few years ago, that's uh, an older sitcom, was a show called Parks and Rec. Never really thought that would make it into a sermon, but here we are. Uh, in, in Parks and Rec, my favorite character is a guy by the name of Ron Swanson. Ron Swanson is a man's man. Uh, Ron Swanson takes no guff from anybody. Ron Swanson is portrayed as this red-blooded American who subsists only on a diet of meat and other animal products. He is just a man's man. And there's a scene in Parks and Rec where Ron has had a hard day. He goes at the end of the day to this diner. And he's talking to the waiter, and the waiter asks what he wants. He's going through the menu, and he, he gets flustered, and he just hands the menu, and he says, give me all the bacon and eggs you got. The waiter, confused, walks away, and Ron says, wait, I worry that what you just heard was that I want a lot of bacon and eggs. He says, what I said was, give me all the bacon and eggs that you have. 
right? It's this clarification. I, I want to make sure that you're actually getting what I'm trying to tell you. And this is what James is trying to say in verse 3. It's as if he's saying, listen, I, I want you to understand what I just said. I want you to grasp that it's, it's not just asking God for what you want. No, it's, it's, it's actually seeking him. He's the one that you want. So, so I'm not telling you to ask him for more things. I'm asking you to ask him to fill you and give you what you actually need. That's why he says in verse 3, he says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James is reminding us it's not just the physical act of, of asking God. It's the posture of your heart when you do ask. Uh, what James is apparently saying is he recognizes that the church would hear that and say, listen, to get what we want, we'll just ask God for him, and, and, and so by extension, we'll actually get what our heart desires, his stuff. What James is saying is, no, 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 what you want, what you need, what your soul is longing for is God himself, and in his graciousness, he's going to give you what you need but the things that he gives you is not what is going to fill your heart so when you ask you don't receive because you're asking just to get God as, an, as a way to get the stuff that you wanted all along and so he's framing our hearts to remind us no what your soul longs for is the father this is who you want and is as good of a father as he is he will give you what you need in this case, James is warning the believers that they're asking the creator to give them created things to worship. This is the definition of idolatry. It's viewing God as simply a giver of his stuff and worshiping and making much of this. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that this is the source of humanity's problem. This is where sin entered into the world. He says this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Again, he's trying to get us back to the root cause of this. He's saying, listen, the, the, the things that you see in this world, the, the created things that are, are good gifts, are meant to point you to an even greater father. The giver is much more worthy of your praise than the gifts. So James is trying to, to reframe this church's mind, say, listen, no, it's not the, not the gifts that your heart longs for, it's, it's the giver. But if we get that backwards, what we're guilty of is idolatry. This is not a new phenomenon in our culture. A, a culture that takes good things, good gifts from a good father, be it money, be it family, be it sex, whatever it is, good gifts from a good father used in the way that he intended. And we've taken those and said, no, forget the God who has given us, let's worship and serve these things. It's the root cause of our hearts. So James says, you adulterous people, in verse 4, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? One of the ways that earthly wisdom has crept into the church today is this lie that leads us to believe that we can have one foot in the world and one foot in our relationship with Christ. It generally works itself out in this way. We live for ourselves Monday through Saturday. I got, I got bills to pay, I got money to chase, I got a job to get, I got a new house that I wanna build, and none of those things are, are bad on the surface. But when that becomes the focus or the object of our worship, what we're actually doing is elevating ourselves because we're saying, these are the things that exist to please me. And if we expect to walk in here for an hour on Sunday, put on our best church face, say the best church lingo that we can think of, and pretend like we are all in in this relationship with the Father, what James is saying is, listen, you've already chosen the side. To choose to be in both is to choose the side of the world. You cannot choose both. And God is a jealous God. He desires your worship He demands your worship. It's why James writes in verse 5, or do you not think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, don't get this twisted. This is not some insecure teenage jealousy that is worried that you're going to find somebody better. This is a jealousy that comes from the place of saying, there is no one better. I'm it. I'm who your soul longs for. I'm who you were created to worship. There is no one better. And so it's why he says he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us because he knows this is the best for you. Worshiping me is the best for you. Being obedient to me, walking with me, is what your soul longs for. Don't buy the lies that it's found anywhere else. No, this jealousy gives us an indication that God is good. That he is loving. That he desires our worship because he recognizes this is going to fill you. First and foremost, he is deserving of it. He is worthy of our praise, but what he recognizes as God is that this is what you were made for. You were made to worship him. But James gets to the heart of the matter. For those of us who have chosen to have one foot in the world, or maybe we've just jumped all in. James says, you're an enemy of God. James doesn't use that flippantly, and neither should we. When James lays out, you are an enemy of God, an enemy of God is not one who should expect to be saved. An enemy of God is not one who has found life. An enemy of God is one to be pitied. But we're going to get to the good news in just a moment, but there's an allusion in James chapter 4. Some of the wording he uses points us back to an Old Testament story. 
It's found in the book of Hosea. If you know the story of Hosea, Hosea has the uh, unfortunate calling of being married to a prostitute. He's married to an unfaithful woman, and, and Hosea's life is meant to be an illustration of God's relationship with Israel. This constant running around on him, this, this constant leaving their true love behind and chasing after all of these other things. And, and there's a moment in Hosea chapter 3, keeping in mind that, that we have run far from God, that we have been the ones that are guilty of adultery in comparison to our relationship with him. There's a moment in Hosea chapter three where he says this, the Lord said to me, said to Hosea, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and they love the sacred raisin cakes. In spite of the idolatry, in spite of the adultery, God remains faithful. He remains welcoming for those who would repent, those who would turn from their life of sin and run to him. Don't miss the grace that is on display here. And so James has said, listen, you got a choice. You can choose earthly wisdom and, and fill your life and your soul with these things that will never fill it, or... You can ask God for the wisdom that only comes from him that will lead you into a deeper longing for him, a deeper obedience to him that will fill you in a way that nothing else can because it is what your soul was designed to be filled with. And in spite of our idolatry, James writes this, and he's quoting part of Proverbs chapter three when he says this in verse six. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes those who feel like all they need is themselves. God opposes those whose life is built around just worshiping and elevating and making much of my name. But the grace that is on display in this passage, in this section that we've looked at, is that he offers grace to those who would humble themselves and recognize that satisfaction, that the longing that I have, that the saving that I need is not found in myself, but it is found in Christ. So what do we do? Well, James gives us that answer in the following verses, starting in verse 7. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Again, don't miss the grace that is on display in the section you may hear. Where is the grace? Where, where do I see that? I'm supposed to grieve. I'm supposed to mourn. I'm supposed to wail. I'm supposed to turn my laughter into mourning and my joy into gloom. That doesn't sound great for my self-esteem. 
Now what James is trying to say is that there is beauty in the grace of Jesus Christ for those who will recognize that your identity is not primarily, primarily found in what you have and what you fill yourself with in the things of this world. And what is found in the fact that you who return to him are children of the Most High God. This is where the longings that you have will be met. This is where your heart and your soul's deepest desires will be found and not left wanting. This is what you crave. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Think about where we've gone in this section. Just in these 10 verses, we've gone from fighting and arguing amongst ourselves because of our desire to worship ourselves uh, we've seen the, the glimpse that we are constantly running around on God, desiring his stuff, but not him. We've seen all of that. We, we've seen that we are a people deserving death because we've chosen the things apart from God. and We've made ourselves an enemy of God. Not good news on our front. And yet... Despite the fact that we are a people deserving of the righteous anger that God will pour out on us. He says, humble yourselves and I will lift you up. It's a recognition that we are not God. On the surface, this sounds pretty easy to recognize. But as we leave this place today, you're entering into a world that's going to tell you, you are God. You are the one worthy of praise, worthy of worship. Everything exists for you. And James reminds us that if we will humble ourselves and recognize that God is the one deserving of praise, deserving of worship, if we will humble ourselves and recognize I am, I am not God. In fact, I am a sinful man. I am a sinful woman, and I am in need of saving that I cannot do myself. The promise over and over again in the gospel is that he will be faithful to forgive, that he will bring you in, give you what your soul longs for. He will give you a purpose and an identity. This shows the greatness of our God. For all who will repent and turn from their sin. For all who will confess that he is the Lord and I am not, that all who will lay down their life in obedience to him, starting with baptism, and walking this life out in obedience, he is faithful to forgive and he is faithful to fill you. Just a moment, we're gonna sing one last song of praise and I would invite you uh, if you have never experienced the grace of the gospel, if maybe for the first time you're recognizing uh, the naturally evil state of your heart that only desires the things that will elevate you, listen, this is the story of all of us. This is why Paul writes in Romans 1 that, that this is what creation has done. This is what humanity has done. They have chosen the creation over the creator. They are idolaters. This is the story of all of us. 
We are deserving of righteous judgment from a righteous judge. But the reality is, is that death that was due for you and I, he sent a son who lived the life that we could not in perfect obedience to the Father. And he was sacrificed on a cross, poured out his blood, broke his body for you. And by the way, it was the broken body and the shed blood that should have been yours and it should have been mine. For the forgiveness of your sins. If this is what the Holy Spirit is drawing you into, would today be the day that you would respond to him? That you would lay down your life in obedience to God and to his word. Submit to him through baptism for the forgiveness of your sins and walk as a new creation. This is what's available. But for others of you, you're on a different part of the journey. You've accepted Christ. You're a believer. But yet you are, are towing the line between the world and God. You are constantly blurring the lines between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And the reality is, is there has to be a decision. What I would ask you is this. James has laid this out for us. We are called to humble ourselves. To lay down our wants and desires at the foot of the cross and take up a life of obedience to him. In just a moment, we're going to sing one last song together. And what I would invite you to do is maybe something different than you've ever done, something that's uncomfortable for you. But I would invite you to, you're welcome to come pray. You're welcome to bring somebody with you. If you see somebody by themselves, go pray with them. Church, we need to understand that we are not so far holy, so far on this journey that we are not capable of sinning and walking away from God. We need to come back and humble ourselves. And if this is you, uh, then I want to make that available for you. Pray where you're at. Pray with somebody around you. Come forward. Bring somebody with you, whatever that looks like. But today, let today be the day that you humble yourselves before a holy and righteous God who is faithful to forgive. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you that it is a firm and true foundation that we can build our lives on and trust that at the end of all things, when every other theory or ideology has fallen and shown itself to be false, your word stands alone as the truth. Father, your word declares exactly who we are, that we are sinful men and women in need of a Savior. And praise be your name that you sent your Son for us. So, Father, in light of that, would we lay down our lives of selfishness, our lives of self-worship, and seek to lay that all at the foot of the cross and see you for the King of the kings and Lord of lords that you are. Father, may Redbrush Christian Church be a group of men and women who are not so consumed with our own desires, but instead the things of God, that we find unity in that. That we be a people who are, are not constantly looking for, for what's wrong or, or what doesn't fit what I want or desire. But Lord, that we would be a people who humble ourselves and say, Lord, if it elevates your name, 
if it makes much of you, if it leads people to Christ, then I'm gonna submit to that. Father, thank you that we can humble ourselves and you're faithful to forgive because of what Christ has done for us. May we never forget the greatness and the glory of the gospel for our lives. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray these things.